0: Chapters one and two of Book Seven of Toilers of the Sea, Part One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Adams. Toilers of the Sea, Part One. Sieur Clubin. By Victor Hugo. Translated by w Moy Thomas. Book Seven. The Danger of Opening a Book at Random. CHAPTER I. THE PEARL AT THE FOOT OF THE PRECIPICE A few moments after his short colloquy with Sieur Landois, Gilliatt was at Saint-Sampson. He was troubled, even anxious. What could it be that had happened? There was a murmur in Saint-Sampson like that of a startled hive. Everybody was at his door. The women were talking loud. There were people who seemed relating some occurrence, and who were gesticulating A group had gathered around them. The words could be heard, "'What a misfortune!' Some faces wore a smile. Gilliatt interrogated no one. It was not in his nature to ask questions. He was, moreover, too much moved to speak to strangers. He had no confidence in rumours. He preferred to go direct to the Braves. His anxiety was so great that he was not even deterred from entering the house.' "'The door of the great lower room opening upon the quay, moreover, stood quite open. "'There was a swarm of men and women on the threshold. "'Everybody was going in, and Gilliatt went with the rest. "'Entering, he found Sieur Landoy standing near the doorposts. "'You have heard no doubt of this event? "'No. "'I did not like to call it out to you on the road. "'It makes me like a bird of evil omen. "'What has happened? "'The Durande is lost.' there was a crowd in the great room. The various groups spoke low, like people in a sick chamber. The assemblage, which consisted of neighbours, the first comers, curious to learn the news, huddled together near the door with a sort of timidity, leaving clear the bottom of the room, where appeared Deruchette sitting, and in tears. Mess Lethierry stood beside her, His back was against the wall at the end of the room. His sailor's cap came down over his eyebrows, a lock of grey hair hung upon his cheek. He said nothing. His arms were motionless. He seemed scarcely to breathe. He had the look of something lifeless placed against the wall. It was easy to see in his aspect a man whose life had been crushed within him, the durande being gone lethierry had no longer any object in his existence he had had a being on the sea that being had suddenly foundered what could he do now rise every morning go to sleep every night never more to await the coming of the durande to see her get under way or steer again into the port what was a remainder of existence without object to drink to eat and then He had crowned the labours of his life by a masterpiece, won by his devotion a new step in civilisation. The step was lost, the masterpiece destroyed. To live a few vacant years longer? Where would be the good? Henceforth nothing was left for him to do. At his age men do not begin life anew. Besides, he was ruined, poor old man. Druchette sitting near him on a chair and weeping, held one of Lethierry's hands in hers. Her hands were joined, his hand was clenched fast. It was the sign of the shade of difference in their two sorrows. In joined hands there is still some token of hope. In the clenched fist, none.' Lethierry gave up his arm to her, and let her do with it what she pleased. He was passive, Struck down by a thunderbolt, he had scarcely a spark of life left within him. There is a degree of overwhelmment which abstracts the mind entirely from its fellowship with man. The forms which come and go within your room become confused and indistinct. They pass by you, even touch you, but never really come near you. You are far away, inaccessible to them, as they to you. The intensities of joy and despair differ in this. In despair we take cognizance of the world only as something dim and afar off. We are insensible to the things before our eyes. We lose the feeling of our own existence. It is in vain at such times that we are flesh and blood. Our consciousness of life is none the more real. We are become, even to ourselves, nothing but a dream, mess lethierry's gaze indicated that he had reached this state of absorption the various groups were whispering together they exchanged information as far as they had gathered it this was the substance of their news the durande had been wrecked the day before in the fog on the douvres about an hour before sunset with the exception of the captain who refused to leave his vessel the crew and passengers had all escaped in the longboat A squall from the south-west springing up as the fog had cleared had almost wrecked them a second time, and had carried them out to sea beyond Guernsey. In the night they had had the good fortune to meet with the Cashmere, which had taken them aboard and landed them at St. Peter's Port. The disaster was entirely the fault of the steersman Tongruel, who was in prison. Clubin behaved nobly. The pilots, who had mustered in great force, pronounced the words, "'The Douvres,' with a peculiar emphasis. "'A dreary halfway house, that,' said one. A compass and a bundle of registers and memorandum-books lay on the table. They were doubtless the compass of the Durand, and the ship's papers, handed by Cloubat to Imbrancam and Tongruil, at the moment of the departure of the "'The longboat.' They were the evidences of the magnificent self-abnegation of that man, who had busied himself with saving these documents, even in the presence of death itself, a little incident full of moral grandeur, an instance of sublime self-forgetfulness never to be forgotten. They were unanimous in their admiration of Clubin, unanimous also in believing him to be saved after all. The Shealtiel cutter had arrived some hours after the Kashmir. It was this vessel which had brought the last items of intelligence. She had passed four-and-twenty hours in the same waters as the Durande. She had lain to in the fog, and tacked about during the squall. The captain of the Shealtiel was present among the company. This captain had just finished his narrative to Lethierry as Gilliatt entered. The narrative was a true one towards the morning the storm having abated and the wind becoming manageable the captain of the shealtiel had heard the lowing of oxen in the open sea this rural sound, in the midst of the waves, had naturally startled him. He steered in that direction, and perceived the Durande among the Douvres. The sea had sufficiently subsided for him to approach. He hailed the wreck. The bellowing of the cattle was the sole reply. The captain of the shield was confident that there was no one aboard the Durande. The wreck still held together well, and notwithstanding the violence of the squall, Cloubin could have passed the night there. He was not the man to leave go his hold very easily. He was not there, however, and therefore he must have been rescued. It was certain that several sloops and luggers from Granville and St. Malo must, after laying to in the fog on the previous evening, have passed pretty near the rocks. It was evident that one of these had taken Clumbin aboard. It was to be remembered that the longboat of the Durande was full when it left the unlucky vessel that it was certain to encounter great risks that another man aboard would have overloaded her and perhaps caused her to founder and that these circumstances had no doubt weighed with clubin in coming to his determination to remain on the wreck his duty however once fulfilled and a vessel at hand clubin assuredly would not have scrupled to avail himself of its aid a hero is not necessarily an idiot. The idea of a suicide was absurd in connection with a man of Cloubin's irreproachable character. The culprit, too, was Tangruil, not Clubin. All this was conclusive. The captain of the Till was evidently right, and everybody expected to see Cloubin reappear very shortly. There was a project abroad to carry him through the town in triumph, two things appeared certain from the narrative of the captain Clubin was saved the durande lost as regarded the durande there was nothing for it but to accept the fact the catastrophe was irremediable the captain of the shealtiel had witnessed the last moments of the wreck the sharp rock on which the vessel had been as it were nailed had held her fast during the night and resisted the shock of the tempest as if reluctant to part with its prey but in the morning, at the moment when the captain of the Shealtiel had convinced himself that there was no one aboard to be saved, and was about to wear off again, one of those seas which are like the last angry blows of a tempest had struck her. The wave lifted her violently from her place, and with the swiftness and directness of an arrow from a bow had thrown her against the two Douvres rocks. "'An infernal crash was heard,' said the captain. The vessel, lifted by the wave to a certain height, had plunged between the two rocks up to her midship frame. She had stuck fast again, but more firmly than on the submarine rocks. She must have remained there suspended and exposed to every wind and sea. The Durande, according to the statements of the crew of the Shealtiel, was already three parts broken up. She would evidently have found during the night if the rocks had not kept her up. The captain of the shield had watched her a long time with his spy-glass. He gave, with naval precision, the details of her disaster—the starboard quarter beaten in, the masts maimed, the sails blown from the bolt-ropes, the shrouds torn away, the cabin skylight smashed by the falling of one of the booms the dome of the cuddy-house beaten in the chocks of the long boat struck away the round-house overturned the hinges of the rudder broken the trusses wrenched away the quarter-cloths demolished the bits gone the cross-beam destroyed the sheer rails knocked off the stern-post broken as to the parts of the cargo made fast before the foremast all destroyed made a clean sweep of gone to ten thousand shivers with top ropes iron pulleys and chains the durande had broken her back the sea now must break her up piecemeal in a few days there would be nothing of her remaining it appeared that the engine was scarcely injured by all these ravages a remarkable fact and one which proved its excellence the captain of the shealtiel thought he could affirm that the crank had received no serious injury the vessel's masts had given way but the funnel had resisted everything Only the iron guards of the captain's gangway were twisted, the paddle-boxes had suffered, the frames were bruised, but the paddles had not a float missing, the machinery was intact. Such was the conviction of the captain of the Shealtiel. Imbrancam, the engineer, who was among the crowd, had the same conviction. The negro, more intelligent than many of his white companions, was proud of his engines. He lifted up his arms, opened the ten fingers of his black hands, and said to Lethierry, as he sat there silent, "'Master, the machinery is alive still!' the safety of Clubin seeming certain, and the hull of the Durande being already sacrificed, the engines became the topic of conversation among the crowd. They took an interest in it, as in a living thing. They felt a delight in praising its good qualities. "'That's what I call a well-built machine,' said a French sailor. Something like a good one," cried a Guernsey fisherman. "She must have some good stuff in her," said the captain of the Shieldtail, "to come out of that affair with only a few scratches." by degrees the machinery of the durande became the absorbing object of their thoughts opinions were warm for and against it had its enemies and its friends more than one who possessed a good old sailing cutter and who hoped to get a share of the business of the durande was not sorry to find that the douvres rock had disposed of the new invention the whispering became louder the discussion grew noisy though the hubbub was evidently a little restrained and now and then there was a simultaneous lowering of voices out of respect to lethierry's death-like silence the result of the colloquy so obstinately maintained on all sides was as follows the engines were a vital part of the vessel to rescue the durande was impossible but the machinery might still be saved these engines were unique to construct others similar the money was wanting but to find the artificer would have been still more difficult it was remembered that the constructor of the machinery was dead it had cost forty thousand francs no one would risk again such a sum upon such a chance particularly as it was now discovered that steamboats could be lost like other vessels The accident of the Durande destroyed the prestige of all her previous success. Still, it was deplorable to think that at that very moment the valuable mechanism was still entire and in good condition, and that in five or six days it would probably go to pieces like the vessel herself. As long as this existed, it might almost be said that there was no shipwreck. The loss of the engines was alone, irreparable. To save the machinery would be almost to repair the disaster. Save the machinery! It was easy to talk of it, but who would undertake to do it? Was it possible even? To scheme and to execute are two different things as different as to dream and to do. Now, if ever a dream had appeared wild and impracticable, it was that of saving the engines then embedded between the douvres. The idea of sending a ship and a crew to work upon those rocks was absurd. It could not be thought of. It was the season of heavy seas. In the first gale, the chains of the anchors would be worn away and snapped upon the submarine peaks, and the vessel must be shattered on the rocks." that would be to send a second shipwreck to the relief of the first on the miserable narrow height where the legend of the place described the shipwrecked sailors having perished of hunger there was scarcely room for one person To save the engines, therefore, it would be necessary for a man to go to the douvres, to be alone in that sea, alone in that desert, alone at five leagues from the coast, alone in that region of terrors, alone for entire weeks, alone in the presence of dangers foreseen and unforeseen, without supplies in the face of hunger and nakedness, without succour in the time of distress, without token of human life around him, save the bleached bones of the miserable being who had perished there in his misery without companionship save that of death. And besides, how was it possible to extricate the machinery? It would require not only a sailor but an engineer, and for what trials must he not prepare? The man who would attempt such a task must be more than a hero. He must be a madman, for in certain enterprises, in which superhuman power appears necessary, there is a sort of madness which is more potent than courage. And after all, would it not be a folly to immolate oneself for a mass of rusted iron? No, it was certain that nobody would undertake to go to the Douvres on such an errand the engine must be abandoned like the rest the engineer for such a task would assuredly not be forthcoming where indeed should they look for such a man all this or similar observations formed the substance of the confused conversations of the crowd the captain of the shealtiel who had been a pilot summed up the views of all by explaining aloud no, it is all over. The man does not exist who could go there and rescue the machinery of the Durande. If I don't go, said Ember Cam, it is because nobody could do it. The captain of the shield shook his left hand in the air, with that sudden movement which expresses a conviction that a thing is impossible. If he existed, continued the captain. Deruchette turned her head impulsively and interrupted. I would marry him. She said innocently, "There was a pause. A man made his way out of the crowd and standing before her, pale and anxious, said, You would marry him, Miss Deruchette. It was Gilliatt. All eyes were turned towards him. Mess Lethierry had just before stood upright and gazed about him. His eyes glittered with a strange light. He took off his sailor's cap, and threw it on the ground, then looked solemnly before him, and without seeing any of the persons present, said, "Deruchette should be his. I pledge myself to it in God's name.'" Chapter 2. Much Astonishment on the Western Coast the full moon rose at ten o'clock on the following night but however fine the night however favourable the wind and sea no fisherman thought of going out that evening either from aug or bordeaux harbour or hume bene or platon or port gras or Vazon bay or Perel bay or Pezerie, or the Thiel, or saints bay or little bow or any other port or little harbour in guernsey and the reason was very simple a cock had been heard to crow at noonday when the cock is heard to crow at an extraordinary hour fishing is suspended at dusk on that evening however a fisherman returning to omptolles met with a remarkable adventure on the height, above Ume Paradis, beyond the two brailles and the two Grun, stands to the left the beacon of the platte-tugère, representing a tub reversed, and to the right the beacon of Saint-Sampson, representing the face of a man. Between these two the fisherman thought that he perceived for the first time a third beacon. What could be the meaning of this beacon? When had it been erected on that point? What shoal did it indicate?' the beacon responded immediately to these interrogations. It moved. It was a mast. The astonishment of the fisherman did not diminish. A beacon would have been remarkable. A mast was still more so. It could not be a fishing-boat. When everybody else was returning, some boat was going out. Who could it be, and what was he about?' Ten minutes later the vessel moving slowly came within a short distance of the Omtol, a fisherman he did not recognise it he heard the sound of rowing there were evidently only two oars there was probably then only one man aboard the wind was northerly the man therefore was evidently paddling along in order to take the wind off point fontenelle there he would probably take to his sails he intended then to double the Encresse and mount Crevel what could that mean the vessel passed the fishermen returned home on that same night at different hours and at different points various persons scattered and isolated on the western coast of guernsey observed certain facts as the Omptol fisherman was mooring his bark, a carter of seaweed, about half a mile off, whipping his horses along the lonely road from the Clotour, near the Druid Stones, and in the neighbourhood of the Martello Towers, Six and Seven, saw far off at sea, in a part little frequented, because it requires much knowledge of the waters, and in the direction of North Rock, and the Yablonneurs, a sail being hoisted. He paid little attention to the circumstance not being a seaman, but a carter of seaweed. Half an hour had perhaps elapsed since the carter had perceived this vessel, when a plasterer, returning from his work in the town, and passing round Pellepool, poul found himself suddenly opposite a vessel, sailing boldly among the rocks of the Quenon, the Rousse de Mer, and the Grippe de Rousse. The light was dark, but the sky was light over the sea, an effect common enough, and he could distinguish a great distance in every direction. There was no sail visible except this vessel a little lower a gatherer of crayfish preparing his fish wells on the beach which separates port Soif from the port Enfer, was puzzled to make out the movements of a vessel between the Bou corneuil and the moubret the man must have been a good pilot and in great haste to reach some destination to risk his boat there just as eight o'clock was striking at the cartel, the tavern-keeper at Cobo Bay observed with astonishment a sail out beyond the Boue du Jardin and the Grunette, and very near the Suzanne and the Western Grun. Not far from Cobo Bay, upon the solitary point of the Ume of Vasson Bay, two lovers were lingering, hesitating before they parted for the night. The young woman addressed the young man with the words,— i am not going because i don't care to stay with you i've a great deal to do their farewell kiss was interrupted by a good-sized sailing-boat which passed very near them making for the direction of the Messelette. Monsieur Le Père de Norgiaux, an inhabitant of Cotillon-Pipe, was engaged about nine o'clock in the evening in examining a hole made by some trespassers in the hedge of his property called La Generotte, and his friquet planted with trees. Even when ascertaining the amount of the damage, he could not help observing a fishing-boat audaciously making its way round the croc-point at that hour of night." on the morrow of a tempest when there is always some agitation upon the sea that route was extremely unsafe it was rash to choose it at least unless the steersman knew all the channels by heart at half-past nine o'clock at le carrier a trawler carrying home his net stopped for a time to observe between colombelle and the souffleress something which looked like a boat the boat was in a dangerous position sudden gusts of wind of a very dangerous kind are very common in that spot the souffleress or blower derives its name from the sudden gusts of wind which it seems to direct upon the vessels which by rare chance find their way thither At the moment when the moon was rising, the tide being high and the sea being quiet, in the little strait of Lihu, the solitary keeper of the island of Lihu was considerably startled. A long black object slowly passed between the moon and him. The dark form, high and narrow, resembled a winding sheet spread out and moving. It glided along the line of the top of the wall formed by the ridges of rock the keeper of lehu fancied that he had beheld the black lady the white lady inhabits the Tau de pez de mont the grey lady the Tau de pez d'aval the red lady the sieurs to the north of the marquis bank and the black lady the grand etacre to the west of lehu met at night when the moon shines these ladies stalk abroad and sometimes meet that dark form might undoubtedly be a sail. The long groups of rocks on which she appeared to be walking might in fact be concealing the hull of a bark navigating behind them, and allowing only her sail to be seen. But the keeper asked himself what bark would dare, at that hour, to venture herself between Lihou and the Pescheresses and the Anguiers and Lare Point, and what object could she have? It seemed to him much more probable that it was the black lady." As the moon was passing the clock-tower of St. Peter in the Wood, the sergeant at Castle Rocken, while in the act of raising the drawbridge of the castle, distinguished at the end of the bay, beyond the Haute Cane, but nearer than the Samboul, a sailing-vessel which seemed to be steadily dropping down from north to south. "'On the southern coast of Guernsey, behind Plainmont, in the curve of a bay composed entirely of precipices and rocky walls, rising peak-shaped from the sea, there is a singular landing-place, to which a French gentleman, a resident of the island since 1855, has given the name of the Port on the Fourth Floor, a name now generally adopted.' this port or landing-place which was then called the moi is a rocky plateau half formed by nature half by art raised about forty feet above the level of the waves and communicating with the water by two large beams laid parallel in the form of an inclined plane the fishing vessels are hoisted up there by chains and pulleys from the sea and are let down again in the same way along these beams which are like two rails for the fishermen there is a ladder the port was at the time of our story much frequented by the smugglers being difficult of access it was well suited to their purposes "'Towards eleven o'clock, some smugglers, perhaps the same upon whose aid Clubin had counted, stood with their bales of goods on the summit of this platform of the Moy. A smuggler is necessarily a man on the lookout. It is part of his business to watch. They were astonished to perceive a sail suddenly make its appearance beyond the dusky outline of Cape Plémont.' It was moonlight. The smugglers observed the sail narrowly, suspecting that it might be some coastguard cutter about to lie in ambush behind the great Hanway. But the sail left the Hanways behind, passed to the northwest of the Beau Blondel, and was lost in the pale mists of the horizon out at sea. Where the devil can that boat be sailing? asked the smuggler. That same evening, a little after sunset, someone had been heard knocking at the door of the old house of the de la rue It was a boy, wearing brown clothes and yellow stockings, a fact that indicated he was a little parish clerk. An old fisherwoman, prowling around the shore with a lantern in her hand, had called to the boy, and this dialogue ensued between the fisherwoman and the little clerk, before the entrance to the de la rue "'What do you want, lad?' the man of this place? He's not there. Where is he? I don't know. Will he be there tomorrow? I don't know. Is he gone away? I don't know. I've come, good woman, from the new rector of the parish, the Reverend Ebenezer Cowdray, who desires to pay him a visit. I don't know where he is. The rector sent me to ask if the man who lives at the de la rue would be at home tomorrow morning." I don't know. End of chapter two of book seven. Recording by Paul Adams. com.